Global Business News 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. The number of Americans applying for unemployment benefits rose last week to a level that's consistent with steady improvement in the labor market. While jobless claims unexpectedly climbed by 6,000 to 278,000 in the week that ended February 27th, the four-week average dropped to the lowest since the end of November. European stocks halting their longest rally since October, oil falling from an eight-week high, and bonds in the region rising as investors await fresh indications of the strength of the U.S. economy. We check the markets every 15 minutes throughout the trading day on Bloomberg. S&P E-mini futures are little changed to lower, down one and a half points. Dow E-mini futures down 10. NASDAQ E-mini futures down less than a point. The DAX in Germany is down two-tenths percent. The 10-year Treasury is down one thirty-second. They yield 1.84 percent. Yield on the two-year, 0.84 percent. NYMEX crude oil down six-tenths percent, or 20 cents, to 34.47 a barrel. COMEX gold is little changed, up 50 cents to 12.42.30 an ounce. The euro, a dollar 0.904. The yen, 113.85. Kroger down almost 8 percent in early trading after fourth-quarter comp store sales missed analyst estimates. And Herbalife is down 6 percent. The nutrition company under federal investigation for allegations of fostering a pyramid scheme said it overstated growth of new customers and distributors last year because of database errors. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, Bloomberg Surveillance, folks. Uh, worldwide, we say good morning. Uh, Michael McKee and Tom Keene. It is 849 on Wall Street. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Jonathan Bernstein, a columnist for Bloomberg View. Ben Carson has finally dropped out of the Republican presidential race. Ted Cruz is presumed most likely to benefit since he and Carson do best among Christian conservatives, although Carson's supporters may not have been a monolithic bloc. Still, Small shifts in votes can make a huge difference. In Tuesday's Arkansas primary, for example, Carson received 6% of the vote, while Donald Trump beat Cruz by two percentage points. If Carson hadn't been in the race, would Cruz have won? Perhaps. True proportional allocation is rare on the Republican side. Winning, even if by just one vote, is disproportionately rewarded. That system of winner-take-more, winner-take-most, and winner-take-all delegate distribution explains why Cruz and Marco Rubio could still easily gather enough delegates to win the nomination even though both, Rubio especially, are off to slow starts. All one of them has to do now is win consistently. A four-candidate field with Ben Carson out doesn't hand Cruz or Rubio anything, but Carson's exit gives both of them a slightly better fighting chance. I'm Jonathan Bernstein. For more view, please go to BloombergView.com or ViewGo on the Bloomberg Terminal. This has been Bloomberg View. And Bloomberg View commentaries can be heard hourly weekdays on Bloomberg Radio. Jonathan Bernstein has been very strong recently. He's written short, pungent, immediate notes out on Bloomberg View uh, with all that we've seen. I'm sure he'll do that as we move to Michigan and on to Florida in uh, less than two weeks. Is it, am I right on that, Mike? Less than two weeks? Well, it's the 15th. It's, yes. So I guess next, that's less than two weeks. Next Tuesday yeah. is Michigan, and the Tuesday after that yeah. is, it's not, it's not just Florida, it's Illinois yeah. and uh, a whole bunch of other states yeah. as well. Our next guest was smart on Tuesday. It sounds like that old, what were, The Cure, their song, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> da-da-da-da. Stephen Stanley has been just outstanding on a centrist, cautious tendency on American GDP. He works with Robert Sinch at Amherst Pierpont and joins us now. Steve, you've been dead on on a more muted yet okay economic growth. Can you move the vector up? 
No, I don't think so. I mean, and I think the uh, the productivity numbers this morning speak to that as well. Even though there was a small upward division in the fourth quarter, productivity for the year last year was a half a percent. So wow. you know, you're just with, with population growth slowing down and, and productivity not really doing much, you're not going to get a, a ton of uh, trend growth. What uh, what does that imply for the longer for for, the, for I don't want to say longer run, but for the, this year? Well, I think you know it, from the Fed's perspective, it's it's a mixed bag, right? Because the economy doesn't look as strong. But at the same time, if, if potential is lower than we thought it was, then we've probably made more progress in terms of taking up slack than we thought. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the economy now. The labor markets have gotten pretty tight, even though growth has been at a pace that we would have considered very mediocre throughout this expansion. What's the then the forecast for uh, your forecast for the pace of expansion at this point? Well, you know, we've been growing at or a little above 2% for several years, and I think we may tick up a little bit from there in 2016. I think there are a couple of things that were drags last year that are not going to be quite as, uh, as as big a deal. I think once we get past the early part of the year, this inventory correction is probably going to be mostly behind us. So I don't think inventories are going to continue to drag on growth as they have over the last few quarters. Um and I think the other thing is we're we're probably getting much closer to the bottom in terms of uh, oil and gas drilling activity. That's been a huge drag on GDP over the last several quarters, and, and certainly not done yet. But I think you know certainly as the year progresses, we'll probably um, see yeah. less of a drag there as well. Is are the markets in tune? We had a little bit of a respite here the last two weeks or so. For you as an economist, when you argue with Bob Sinch and throw coffee cups at him, is Bob Sinch's world more in tune with Stephen Stanley's world? Um, we're coming into somewhat better alignment. I think if you go back a month, the the markets were thinking that the U.S. economy was absolutely positively headed right into a recession. And, you know, I think that was a gross overreaction, and people are kind of stepping back from the precipice a little bit on that. Um, and, and as a result of that, um, Fed expectations have moved up a little bit, and the markets are almost pricing one whole 25 basis point for the entire year now, whereas there was a brief period of time uh, last month where there was basically nothing uh, baked into the cake. So I, I, we're moving in that direction. Um, my guess is there's still more to go to get us into better alignment, but, um, uh, you know, we're at least not quite as divergent as we were um, a month ago. Well, it's interesting because uh, there have been a lot of people in the bond markets who've suggested that maybe the markets are not prepared for what the Fed is going to have to actually do. Are you in that camp? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a theme, um, and and certainly I've been uh, very early on that, unfortunately. But I think that's a, that's something that I've talked about for several years. That once the Fed finally did get going, they're likely to have to move faster and buy more than the markets are, are expecting. I think the first inkling of that really was the was the inflation data for January, where we got 0.3 increases for both of the core measures. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the one thing that could press the Fed, I think, into acting more aggressively right. than what they'd like to do. Oh, along that line, I'm glad you bring it up. If there's 28 flavors of measuring inflation, Mike, I have a tendency to the Cleveland CPI, which is core-like, but with the adjustable outliers every month, month to month to month, the mix changes. That's elevated above some of the measures. Are, are the are the other measures catching up with more elevated, more malleable measures? 
Well, I think you're going to see that. Um, we, we have the one that's been the outlier to the downside is the one that the Fed, of course, pays the most attention to, the core PCE deflator. And that one has moved in the last three months from 1.3 to 1.7. So we're starting to see a little bit of convergence there. The gap between the CPI measures and the, and the PCE deflator measures have been unusually large. And I think those will close, uh, begin to close this year and, and more than likely close by the PCE deflator measures creeping a little higher. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, there's an analogous measure for the for the PC deflator data that comes out of the Dallas Fed, mm-hmm. and that measure has been running, you know, 25 basis points or so higher than the than the, the core PCE numbers. So, um, and I think a lot of people at the Fed have started to emphasize that alternative measure. So I think their their understanding of it. I think what's interesting is just at the point where it seems like inflation might be ticking higher. All of a sudden, people at the Fed are starting to, to, you know, play the shell game again, and now we're going to talk about inflation expectations, which they fear may be moving lower. So there's always a reason to be dovish, I guess, and uh, and we'll see how it goes. But if these inflation numbers continue to be firmer, I think they're going to be forced to uh, to, to respond. Uh, talk to us from an economic point of view, um, leaving the Fed out of it, but uh, how inflation expectations relate to inflation forecasts. Well, I, you know, I think what we've learned in economics over the last 20 to 30 years is that inflation expectations are very important. I, I still don't think economists have a very good handle on how exactly inflation uh, develops, but I think one thing that people will agree on is that um, one important input is what people expect inflation to be because there's a certain inertia there. If people expect 2% inflation, then you're, you're kind of predisposed to get that in the absence of some sort of a shock. Um, I, I think for me, I, I don't think that the average person out there is so sophisticated that they, you know, that they can give you a 10 basis point swing in their inflation expectations, and it's very meaningful. So I, yeah. I, I take the numbers more qualitatively than quantitatively, but yeah. but I certainly think that when the Fed runs policy as easy as it's run for several years, that's one example where. People may be surprised, but the fact is that that should leave a mark yeah. in terms of inflation over time. Steve, if you have a chance to get into Manhattan sometime in the next three or four years, can your people talk to our people? We would love to get you into the studio. We will extend it. We will work on that. Uh, Steve, we could do uh, Mike, the Nirvana of a one-hour Steve Stanley Robert Sinch extravaganza. Yeah, that go. would be extraordinary. Stephen Stanley with Amherst Pierpont uh, having to put up with Bob Singer's discussions on Yen and uh, the rest of it. I, Mike, I can't, you know, somebody gets it right. And uh, it's pretty, pretty impressive uh, how they took morning Indeed. in America and brought it down a little bit. Indeed. Yeah. Futures negative one down, futures negative eight. Bonus round, Mike McKee and I in New York City in one piece after Super Tuesday. Your bonus, another hour of Bloomberg Surveillance.